So here are now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 6th chapter, verses 39 through 42. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. May the Lord richly bless these three parables, proverbs, stories to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Dear Lord, as we look at the way that Jesus teaches, and in particular this morning, the way that Luke has put them together, sort of sandwiched them, compressed them together so that we look for a theme in the midst of them. Lord, may we May we see this all-important message this morning. May we recognize how important it is to know or to be careful in who we follow. And, and that if we follow someone, making sure that it is someone who is following you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is... In a way, this is Missions Week, and so it's Missions Sunday. We had our missions dinner last night, so I'd like to start out this morning by telling you a missions story. This happened many years ago, it was shortly after the fall of communism. I was in the Ukraine, a country that gets a lot of press right now because of the devastation that's going on there. I was in the city of Odessa, and I was there to make a video and actually to record some audio of a church renewal. But as part of that uh, trip, we, we took a field trip one day outside of Odessa, traveling along the northern shore of the Black Sea to a medical clinic where this particular group had, had a ministry. And as we drove along through some of the richest farmland in the world, and as I remember, mainly planted with sunflower in those days, it was quite a long trip. And, and as we were going along, we would pass passed through several massive building uh, uh, projects. And the best way that I can describe them is that they were just the skeletons of city. Like somebody sat down and planted a whole city and started to build it, and you had these big skyscrapers, but the only thing that was there was the steel girders. They had been abandoned long ago because they ran out of money. That's, it was very financial, the reason that communism fell. Well, near one of these ghost cities was this clinic, and several physicians were there just struggling to minister to the people who were just trying to stay alive. The, the clinic doubled as a church on Sunday in the medical clinic during the week. Now, during my travels and missions, I've been subjected or I've been exposed to abject poverty in, in many different places, in Haiti, in Africa, in North and, I'm sorry, in South and Central America. And, and the particular poverty that we ran into there was quite different because it was the kind of poverty that occurs when a political and economic system crashes. Because these were highly educated, highly trained, prestigious, 
prestigious doctors and scientists who had high places within the government when the government crashed. They were growing vegetables and potatoes in their yard just trying to stay alive. Some of these doctors, we were told, hadn't been paid in over two years. And as part of what we did on that day is we listened to the testimony of these doctors as they told us their particular story. They, they were raised as atheists, and um, they were raised as communists, and they tried to be good communists, and um, it was when communism crashed that they lost everything. But when they lost everything, they found Jesus. Um, more accurately, Jesus found them, and their whole life changed. But as they told their stories, all of their testimonies were very similar. There was a particular part of their testimony where they just fell apart, men and women both. And it was when they began to tell of what one of their jobs was as doctors and scientists in the communist regime. Because it was their responsibility to go into the schools and indoctrinate the children that there was no God that the state was their only beneficiary, benefactor, and, and, and that that was their only hope, and, and that God was just a myth that the rest of the world told people to manipulate them. And hundreds, if not thousands of children, they led into darkness. And when they told that story, they just sobbed before us. It was, they were some of the most compelling testimonies I have ever seen because they were the blind leading the blind. And they knew in their hearts that they had led these children into a pit. But now they had a different story. Now their story was not, follow me because I'm going to lead you into darkness. It is follow me because I'm going to lead you into light. Because God does exist. He is alive. And he sent his son so that he would die on a cross for you so that you might live. And they warned the children now that they could get they're in front of, to be careful who you follow. Because you never know that the person you're following is not leading you into destruction. Be careful who you're following and make sure from now on and for the rest of our lives and throughout all eternity that if you follow anyone, make sure that they're following Jesus. To put that very simply, only follow the follower. And that's what Luke is bringing out in his passage this morning. Only follow a follower. And, and it might not seem like that to you right away. But as I said in, in my prayer, when someone like Luke, a, a gospel writer, takes what uh, might seem to be disparate stories and sandwiches, compresses them together like this, well, what you want to do is look for a theme. You know, the skeptics say, oh, Luke, yeah, he just got, to, he didn't know what to say, so he just threw a bunch of stories in here. Not so. They're very closely integrated, and I want to show you that this morning. In fact, a lot of what he has been teaching us has led up to this. If you remember, when we started this chapter, Jesus was choosing his apostles from the mountain. He brought them down. Now, those apostles are around him while he teaches, and then around them are a vast number of other disciples, and of course, a great multitude was there. But we learned in verse 20 that Jesus he fixed his gaze. He raised his eyes upon his disciples. So, so much of what he is teaching them is not just how to be kingdom dwellers, but how to be kingdom disciples, and then how to be kingdom leaders. 
the leaders of other disciples. And so he's been sketching out what a kingdom disciple looks like. Uh, starting at the very beginning, when he gave those beatitudes, those were representative of the state of a believer. And, and, and then he began to explain this extraordinary kingdom ethics, uh, uh, impossible for us to keep. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And he even went beyond that to talk about it's not just important what you do. It's important what you think. It's important the way you do it or why you do it. Your motives are of great significance. And when you become a disciple of mine, everything changes. The way you judge, the way you condemn, the forgiveness that you give, and the way that you give all becomes kingdom-oriented rather than oriented to this earth. Now, something else that he's been doing is, is he has been, he's been sort of drawing a distinction between those who follow him and especially his leaders now because he's talking to his leaders-to-be and the apostles. But he's, he's, he's making a distinction between them and the world. If you'll notice, Luke, Matthew, when he gave the Beatitudes, just gave the positive, blessed are those who are poor. Well, Luke not only gave only four, but he gave first the wheel... And then the woes. He said, blessed are you if you're this way. And then cursed are you if you're not that way. So he's making a comparison between his disciples and the world. And you may remember after establishing that incredible kingdom ethics. And only the redeemed self. Only that which Christ has redeemed is ever going to be able to even aspire to those kinds of ethics. He began to talk about motives. And when he talked about motives, he made it clear that if you are simply loving those who love you, then what difference is there between you and this noble pagan over here? Drawing the distinction between his disciples and the world, teaching them how to be kingdom leaders, how to be kingdom disciples. And that's what's going to just lead us into the three stories or parables or proverbs, uh, however you want to look at them, that he's going to tell sandwiched in between this discussion of kingdom ethics and the discussion of fruit that is about to come. He is explaining to us the kind of followers that we should be, and he's explaining to those who lead the kind of leaders that they should be and teaching us to be good followers and good leaders. With that said, let's dive in now to these three parables. The first one, second one a proverb, third one a story. At least that's the way that I see it. And we'll see how there is indeed a theme that Luke is developing through all of them. So turn, if you will, to that 39th verse as he begins this by saying um, he also told them a parable. Now, it doesn't seem like a parable right off the bat, does it? But I think it's a parable in the sense that he is forming a mental image in our mind, a mental image that was familiar to the people of his day, and it has a principle, and that's basically what a parable is. So he tells them a parable, and it goes like this. Can a blind man lead a blind man? That's a question that expects a negative answer. Of course he can't. So can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit. Well, that expects a positive answer. Yes, they will. Now, in, in analyzing that, let's, let's kind of probe a little bit deeper into that and, and try to pick up some of the aspects of it. First of all, blindness. 
And we've studied this many times in our studies of the Gospels, that blindness was quite prevalent in Palestine in those days. Whether it, whether it was congenital, people were born with it, whether it was because of the environment they lived in, or because of an accident, or because of illness, there were a lot of people who were blind. And typically, someone who is blind is not able to see their way, and there were many obstacles in the way. So, you would normally see a blind person being led by someone else. And so the idea of blindness was one that they were quite familiar with. And, and, and he says now that if a blind person just wanders around in that particular terrain, chances are they're going to fall into a pit or a ditch or a hole or something. Those of you who have been to Palestine, Israel, you know that it's rugged terrain. It, it, there's lots of pits and ditches and what's worse is that for millennia, people have been digging for water there. So there's holes in the ground. There's wells and cisterns and all kinds of things that people can fall into. Even person can see. Needs to be careful because if you're walking around at night, you can fall right off the edge of a cliff or you can fall into something. So this is something that they were quite aware of. But there's one other aspect of this that I want to make sure that you see. It's not just a blind person wandering around in that rough terrain in danger of falling into a pit. They're being led. And the idea is that this leader, the person who is leading them, is also blind. Now, the connotation, anyway, is that the person being led may or may not be aware that the person leading them is also blind. That might be putting their trust and their belief in that person who is leading them and, of course, if a blind person is leading another blind person, well, they're both going to fall into the pit. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking symbolically as well as um, uh, physically because that's what a parable is. A parable uses something from everyday life, and there's a principle. And the principle that is being told here is to beware of false teachers. It's false teaching. That is primarily what Jesus is talking about here. Because if someone who is teaching falsehood leads someone who is blind spiritually, then both of them, the leader and the follower, are both going to fall into the pit. And the pit, of course, being a religion that cannot save you. The pit ultimately is the pit of hell, where those who are outside of the covenant with God, outside of perfect righteousness, outside of Christianity go. Well, this is something that um, we can also pick up by looking at the parallel in Matthew. Matthew uses it in this context. He doesn't actually use it in the Sermon on the Mount. He uses it in his 15th chapter, and it goes like this. Jesus says, let them alone. Now, he's actually talking about the scribes and Pharisees because a group of scribes and Pharisees, the blue bloods, have come up from Jerusalem and they're furious at his disciples because they are eating without having ceremoniously washed their hands. And so they're upset about it. And Jesus says, let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both of them will fall into a pit. So obviously, the idea here is false teaching. Now, there's kind of a two-pronged message that Jesus is giving. Remember, he's talking, his eyes are primarily on his disciples, but there's a whole crowd that are there. So he has sort of a, a two-pronged message that he's given. The first one is very clear. 
be careful, beware of blind guides. Beware of false teachers, false prophets, and false doctrines. Because actually, they're all around you. This is something else that actually Matthew did include in his Sermon on the Mount, or his version of Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, in Judaism, all around them, they are surrounded by false teachers, false doctrines, and false prophets. I mean, the Sadducees and the chief priests had turned Judaism into more of a business. The the Pharisees had made it so incredibly legalistic with their own commandments and traditions. The, The zealots had turned it into a weapon and a justification literally for terrorism. And the Essenes had turned it into a reason to escape from society. So nobody was actually worshiping Yahweh the way that he should be worshiped. They're surrounded by false teachers and false prophets. And here, the disciples that he's preparing are getting ready to go out into the dark Gentile world where there's every kind of false teaching and idolatry that you can imagine. So the lesson is poignant. Be careful. Be careful who you follow. Because if you're following someone who doesn't know where they're going, then you're going to fall into a pit. But I don't think that's all he's telling you. Because after all, we are moving towards this idea of of leadership, of of what a disciple is. Now, not only should a disciple not follow a false or a blind guide, but brothers, and he's talking to his disciples, brothers, don't you be blind guides either. I am sending you out as my ambassadors. You're going to be the foundation upon which I build my church. And if you are off just one little tiny degree, then there's, you're going to miss the mark by a mile. So therefore, you have to be true to everything that I have taught you. You are the light of the world, he says in Matthew. Because I am sending you out to be that city on a hill so that you can shed the light that I am sharing with you with the dark world. You're the salt of the earth, but salt preserves things. And if you don't preserve this message, if you strike out on your own, if you start leading rather than following, then you're not salty anymore. And the only thing that can be done with that which is not salty is thrown out in the street and trampled underfoot because it's no good for anything. Strong message that Jesus is teaching these disciples. Don't be led astray by false teachers. For goodness sakes, don't become one yourself. Because as soon as you become a false teacher, you're a blind guide. And blind guides lead blind people directly into a pit. Something else that Luke is developing here that's quite important is he's developing the concept of introspection. I've told you many times that Christianity is an introspective religion. We we need to constantly be examining ourselves and and, and looking at ourselves to see whether whether or not we are staying true to what Jesus has told us. But, you know, the trouble with blind guides and following blind guides is that most blind guides don't know it. They're not introspective. They're not looking at themselves. They're not comparing themselves with Scripture. Man, they're just doing that. They're on their own, and they're leading, and they're collecting disciples, and they have the world's idea of what success is, and they grow more and more successful, and so therefore, they just simply think, because they throw Jesus' name around a lot, that they are talking in His name, but they're not. They're blind guides, and if you follow a blind guide, 
you're going to end up in a pit. So therefore, it is so hugely important that you follow right behind your leader. And that's where he's going to go in this next statement. You're going to see how they all flow together with each other. Look now at the 40th verse. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, it's pretty much accepted by most scholars that Jesus, this is not an original proverb. It's kind of a proverb. Um, that it didn't originate with Jesus. That, that this was floating around Palestine at the time and actually other religions. But it is also something that can mean different things in different contexts. And, and actually, even in the gospel, it is used different ways. For instance, Matthew in his 10th chapter, the great discipleship chapter that, that he has, this is what he says, or Jesus says, Matthew reporting it, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, there, the proverb is to teach the disciples that you're not going to escape hatred and persecution because you're not above your teacher. If they hated your teacher, they're going to hate you. John goes into this in his Upper Room Discourse when he puts it this way. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But that's not exactly the way that Luke is using it here. He has a different nuance of a message. It's basically the same. It's, there's a relationship between teacher and student. But it, it, is, it is not just that they're going to treat the student like the teacher. And, and, and John also kind of expresses this earlier in that evening from the 13th chapter. Right after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. That most extraordinary uh, uh, event. This is what Jesus says. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So in other words, the way that John is using it there is to say that you should reflect your master. That's what, a, that's what a student does. He follows. He reflects the master. Now, John uses a little bit stronger words than Luke does, and I think that that's probably more along the line of what Luke uses because John, instead of using the word teacher, uses the word kurios, Lord, master. Instead of using the word disciple, he uses the word doulos or slave. The relationship between teacher and, and student is of Lord and slave. And that's the way that I believe that Luke is using it here. He, he's talking about this revered, in those days definitely revered, certainly not in our day. But in those days, the relationship between a student and the teacher was one where the student revered the teacher while they were under that tutelage. They didn't go to tell the teacher what they would like to learn. They didn't go to tell the teacher what um, they, they thought about something. They went to sit at the teacher's feet and to absorb what the teacher had to teach them. But the difference, the nuance... The difference in the way the world's teacher's uh, uh, disciple would be and the one that Jesus is explaining 
is that in a, in a purely human sense, as far as the world is concerned, even though it wouldn't happen while there was teacher-student, but after the student graduates, after the disciple gets out on his own, well, then we really only respect the ones who excel and in some senses can surpass their teachers. A great example of that would be from Greek philosophy. Socrates was a great philosopher. He was a great teacher. In fact, we still use the Socratic method in our teaching in some places. Well, he had a student who was far more brilliant than he was. In fact, many people think he was one of the most brilliant philosophers and political scientists who ever lived. His name was Plato. But even Plato had a, a disciple who in some ways eclipsed him. And that was Aristotle. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree that he eclipsed Plato as far as his brilliance was concerned, but he certainly had an impact on Western thought. And so therefore, in each one of those cases, the student surpasses their teacher. Not in the kingdom, folks. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Because you see, our teacher isn't somebody else, not another human being. Our teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Logos who became flesh. The one who is absolutely perfect and understands kingdom ethics and lived them out to perfection. So no one is even going to achieve his level. There's no student of Jesus that's going to be above his master. So therefore, what we are called to do is to reflect him, to, to be trained in him, to absorb him. So that we can, in one way, in some ways, reflect his goodness and his greatness. That's what we actually learned back in the 31st verse. When Jesus is saying, no, you need to love your enemies. You need to be like your father, the most high. Your sons and daughters of the most high. And that's who we reflect. We reflect God when we reflect the kingdom. When we are true kingdom believers. The student will never, ever surpass his or her teacher, as long as that teacher is Jesus Christ. So a good disciple, brothers and sisters, please just take this to heart. A good disciple, and we all want to be good disciples. A good disciple is by definition a follower. We follow Christ. We reflect him. We learn from him. We love him. And we want to be good Disciples, so therefore we are good followers. Well, I think there's another aspect of what Jesus is saying here because, again, he's talking about leaders and training. He's saying that, you know something, if you're going to be a good disciple, well, you need to do this. When he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. So, once again, now he's talking about leaders. Now he's talking about disciples who are going to lead and what kind of disciples should they be? A good leader, brothers and sisters, is first and foremost a disciple who is a good follower. Never follow anyone. Let me make it stronger. Never, ever, ever follow anyone who is not following Jesus. Because in order to be a good leader, you've got to be a good follower. You know what a good leader is? A good leader is someone who is so transparent... That you don't even see them. All you see is Jesus. And you see, that's, that's not the way it's done in the world at all. In fact, a good way to have history forget you is to be a perfect follower. Because we don't remember followers. 
We want people to excel. We want them to be unique. We want them to add something to the equation. Good example would be for music would be the composer Ludwig van Beethoven. Okay, Beethoven had a style that was hard to miss, but yet he was taught and tutored by Joseph Haydn, another great composer. Well, if Beethoven perfectly reflected, perfectly followed Joseph Haydn, none of us would have remembered him because it would be Haydn that we remember. This was just a student who was very much like him. But instead, he has his own style. I mean, you can't miss it. One of the most brilliant composers that we have seen in classical music. And so, therefore, we love, you may not love it, I happen to, love Beethoven (laughs) because he is such a great composer. Well, you see, what happens if that if that moves into the kingdom of God, that's where devastation occurs. That's where the church begins to come unhinged. That's when people begin to follow blind guides because they're going to lead them into a tent, I mean, to a pit. Because what they're saying is that, well, I need to assert myself. I need to take this. I know everybody's all this old formulas that he's been talking about for years and years. I need to add to it. I mean, come on, let's do a little excitement here. We have to have something new. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to use our own illustrations. It doesn't mean that we're not going to apply our own personalities to the text. It doesn't mean that we're not going to try to make it exciting and interesting in some way that we can. But we don't change it. And we don't place ourselves up front as the one to be followed. The good leader is a follower. And a good leader is so transparent and so fixated on the hem of Jesus' robe that you don't even see them. All you see is Jesus. That's that's what he's teaching. He's teaching that if we're going to be good leaders, we need to be absolutely 100% certain that we are leading people to Jesus. Well, that leads us right into this third, I'm going to call this a story, could be a parable. Uh, A familiar one, but I I want you to rethink it a little bit. Because I want you to think it not necessarily in the way that Matthew gives it in the more famous Sermon on the Mount because Matthew is talking entirely about judging, okay? That's where his focus is, judging others. Luke's talking about following and leading. He's talking about this whole idea of the blind leading the blind into a ditch. And if we're not going to say that he just threw this together, then we need to follow that as we move our way through this. Let's go ahead and read the whole story, and then we'll sort of take it apart. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So first of all, let's just define some of these words. Speck. Now, the speck speaks of a very small foreign object, something that doesn't belong there. Some translations, you'll see sawdust or splinters. That, the word doesn't say that. The word just simply says a tiny, small object. The focus or the emphasis on the word is on its size. It, it's a, a little bitty object that gets in the eye that is barely perceptible. But unfortunately, most of us leave it there. I, I, I want you to round it out. I want you to stay with the idea of a speck. Anybody ever got a speck in your eye? 
It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It hurts sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes it can get so far up, it can get lodged, and, and you can actually scratch your eye, or, or you can, it can get infected. And so momentarily, when you have a speck in your eye, your vision is blurred, or, or it's impeded in some way. You're driving down the I-95, by the way, we've been going to I-95, that drive crazy, don't they? I mean, this is a crazy world that people drive in. You can imagine if all of a sudden you get something in your eye and you can't see and you're in the middle of I-95, well, it could be dangerous. It could be life-threatening, actually. So keep that in mind as far as the speck is concerned. It's a good thing when someone helps you get a speck out of your, mouth, um, out of your eye. Okay? It's a good thing. So let's just keep that in the back of our minds. We'll come back to it. Second thing is the, is the log. The beam, the plank. Now, it's a word that is supposed to be totally absurd. It's, it's total hyperbole. But the idea is that this person has a log sticking out of their eye. Now, the word that is used, we talked earlier about the way they built their houses there in Palestine and Israel in these days. They were stone structures. They would build the wall up, but they used the roof almost as another room. So therefore, there were these big beams, these wooden logs that went across that held the roof in place so they could get up there and walk around. That's what the word refers to. So, so the word refers to the absurd picture of somebody walking around with this gigantic log beam sticking out of their eye, and what they're doing is passing judgment on the person who's just got a little bitty tiny speck. Now, obviously, if you have a beam sticking out of your eye, you can't see clearly. So therefore, you're not going to be able to see the speck that is in the brother's eye. You're just simply um, looking down your nose at it. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's one other thing I want you to see. I think it's four times that Luke uses the word brother. Here, In fact, the address, he actually puts an address. Brother, let, let me get the speck out of your eye. So what that tells me is that this is a community uh, of people, people who know each other. In Jesus' day, perhaps the community of his disciples. In our day, this is the church, folks. These are Christians. These are Christians talking to each other. So the, the whole idea of the judgmentalism that's going on here is within the Christian church itself. So how are we going to interpret this? Actually, when we do, it's not so absurd, is it? Now, the way that Matthew interprets it is pretty straightforward, is that don't judge. That's what his discussion is. Judge not, lest you also be, be, be judged. And the measure that it is measured out to you, that you measure to others, will be measured out to you. And then he goes right into this as a supporting story. Luke's not using it in exactly the same way. Because his supporting stories have to do with Jesus' discussion to his, to, to his disciples that are there. So I, I pull two meanings out of this. One for people at large and the other for those who are going to lead. For the people at large, it's very simple. It's very similar to what Matthew says. Don't, 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 <laughs> don't judge somebody else with a speck that's in their eye when you've got this big huge beam sticking out of your own eye. Because you can't see clearly. You can't see the one. And, and you're not to be judgmental in that way. Because after all, and if I had a chart here, I would draw it. God is way up here in his holiness. And Hitler is way down there at the bottom of the scale. Where do you think you fit? 
down there. You, you, you hardly have the difference between you and the worst example of humanity that exists on this planet because God is so perfect in his holiness. So basically, the story is you don't need to be judging others and absolutely paying no attention to the log that is in your own eye. Now, of course... The ones in Jesus' day who were doing this would be the Pharisees. So in a, in a sense, I know that he's kind of focusing on the Pharisees because they were the ones who looked down their long bony noses and noticed everything wrong that everyone else did. But I think it goes way beyond the Pharisees. I think we all have this tendency, don't we? If we're really honest with us, we tend to judge ourselves with a different standard than we judge others. We tend to be quick to see imperfections and problems in others and very slow to see them in ourselves. And so therefore, we're, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. I mean, Paul puts it this way, I think, very aptly. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We're all going to be judged. And so therefore, what are you so worried about the speck in your brother's eye when... You should be worried about the log in yours. But I'm not sure I can leave it there. Because there's something that doesn't make sense to me. Granted, I know that Jesus is using hyperbole. But if my brother and I are committing the same sin, why is mine so much worse than his? Okay? Let's say we're both coveting, and I notice that you're coveting, and I'm not paying any attention to my coveting, but I am paying attention to his. Now, what makes my coveting so bad that I've got a log in my eye, and he's only got a speck? Wouldn't I have, I might have a bigger speck, but wouldn't I just have a speck in my eye? Because the, the, the sins are so similar. That's why I don't think Jesus is talking about just doing the same thing that our brothers and sisters do. I think that he's got his eyes fixed on his disciples and he is saying, you know something? Do you know the sin that will destroy you? You know the sin that will derail the missionary activity I'm sending you out on? Do you know the sin that will absolutely cause the church to come unglued? It is the sin of self-righteous, arrogant pride. Pride is that sin that is going to transcend all others. And if you are conducting yourselves with pride, if you're conducting yourselves with arrogance, if you are all about yourself and you are saying, okay, look, you come and follow me, then you are the one who has the beam in your eye. Pride's the beam, folks. The speck could be anything. I think the great example Jesus gives us of this is that great story that he tells we'll get to it later on in Luke of two men going up to the to the temple to worship and one of them is a tax collector and we already saw this with the discussion of Levi when he came uh, became a disciple that they are considered to be the lowest of the low you couldn't get any lower than a tax collector in Jewish society and yet here's this Pharisee who also goes up crisp absolutely pure pious looking down his nose at everyone praying to God thank you Lord that I do all these great things I tithe and I do this and thank you I'm not like this bum over here Well, who had the beam and who had the speck? As bad as that tax collector's sin was, because he was humble before God, it was a speck. The one who had the beam was the one who was doing everything supposedly right, but he was arrogant before God. He was puffed up. He was full of himself. He was prideful. And there's something that God cannot stand. It is the proud. 
don't have to look very far in Scripture to find it. Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So therefore, I think that a very big part of what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that this new religion, this kingdom that I'm establishing and you are going to be the very foundation of is going to be derailed before it gets out of the first century if you're not humble. And all you have to do is look in Scripture, brothers and sisters. God makes his leaders humble. He humbles his leaders. He can't use you when you're proud and you're full of yourself. Just look at Moses. Moses is a great example. Moses is a prince of Egypt. He's in the household of the Pharaoh. You can't get much more significant than that in that time. And yet God couldn't use him. So he sends him to the desert for 40 years to tend sheep. And after 40 years of being humbled, finally he can use him. David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man the Holy Spirit is rushing on, but he got full of himself. And he took a woman who wasn't his, and he killed, his, his, uh, killed her husband. And then all, along comes Nathan to knock him off his horse, right? That great, beautiful story that he tells. In the New Testament, we have Peter. Peter, who's the, the kind of the voice of the apostles, the one we hear so much about. Well, he, he wasn't just right. He needed to be humbled. And so he denied Jesus three times. Probably never, ever forgot that lesson. And, of course, there's Paul. Paul, who had all the intellect, all the connections. And Jesus literally knocked him off his horse and blinded him so he could see now, if you turn here right now, I'm going to throw something at you, okay? But on the last sheet of your song sheet, I want you to read a poem by our resident poet, Louis Gander. Not right now. Don't go there. I'm going to throw something at you. I'm telling you, I will. I don't want you going there. But he sent me this poem last week after last week's uh, message. It's perfect, okay? It's just a beautiful poem. I want you to read it after the message. But... The reason I'm thinking about it is because this is what the Lord did to Paul. He literally knocked him off his horse because he can't use him as arrogant and proud. He needs him to be humble. So all throughout Scripture, you see the Lord humbling his servants because that's the kind of of, of person that he uses. And unfortunately, that's where we usually leave this parable when we go our way. The Lord doesn't want us to be judgmental so therefore we just leave our poor brother or sister with the speck in their eye not remembering that that's not what Jesus said he didn't say don't judge ever don't pay attention to the speck in your brother's or sister's eye leave them to struggle with it alone in fact didn't we just learn that when we looked at verse 37 When we talked about judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, how what the culture wants us to do is say condemn not for anything, leave the speck in my eye, my egregious sin, my aberration of the commands of God. Leave it in my eye and go your way because I don't want you to pay any attention to anything that's going on me. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says get that plank out of your eye. Get it out. Remove it so that you can see clearly. This is a message to his disciples so that you can see clearly. So then you can come along beside your brother or sister and remove the speck that is in their eye. 
Because a speck hurts. Because a speck impedes vision. And because if I'm left to myself and I'm wandering down I-95 at 90 miles... I don't drive 90 miles an hour, I was just joking. I mean, at 60 miles an hour and, and, and I lose my vision, I need someone to grab the wheel to hold me in the narrow place that I, I'm in. So it's not that he doesn't want you to come along beside your brother or sister and remove the speck that's in their eye. He says he doesn't want to do it when you are being puffed up and arrogant and proud. Saying, I don't have that speck, so look how good I am. Do, do you see how Jesus is focusing this in on his disciples, on leadership? Well, I have four, four short points. And I've already covered most of these, so I'm, don't worry, they're not going to be real long. But let me, let, me, let me just, there's four lessons that we really need to learn from this. First of all, brothers and sisters, be introspective. Be self-examining. Look at yourself constantly. You know, we're reformed, but that, that word doesn't catch it because it means that that's past. We're actually reforming. We're constantly reforming ourselves, constantly looking at the standards that we adhere to. And boy, there's the rub, folks. Don't just be introspective. because That alone is not what's going to help you. I would imagine that those doctors that I was talking about at the beginning of this message in the Ukraine, I would imagine that they were introspective to a degree. But look at the standard that they were comparing themselves to. I need to be a good communist. I need to be good atheist. I need to be good scientist. And here are my standards, and I'm going to adhere to those standards. <laughs> that, 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 that's not our standard. That's not the kind of introspection I'm talking about. Because we have a single standard, brothers and sisters. We have a single source of authority, and that's... The word of God. When Jesus came, he, he quoted the Old Testament scriptures. He showed his belief in the word of God. He's the Logos, living word. He brought God's words literally to earth and he shared them with these disciples. And then the Holy Spirit came along and they wrote it down. And we have it here. Here's our guide. And we constantly need to be holding up the mirror of scripture and looking at ourselves and asking ourselves, how do I measure up? You know, people seem to think sometimes that the longer you walk with Christ, the better you get, and the less ugly that looks. That's not the truth, is it? Because the more you know Scripture and the more, you're, more, more you know the Lord, the uglier you look. I, I mean, the light gets closer and the mirror gets more magnified, and you just realize how incredibly sinful you actually are. So you're never going to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and say, I've arrived. You know, I'm, I'm good now. I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. No, the more that you, that, that, that you look at the mirror of Scripture, the tougher it's going to be. But there's going to be a day that we will see him as he is, and we will be glorified, and we will be clothed in his righteousness. And glory to that day, because then we will be as he is. Until that day, it's going to be a constant struggle as we continue to be sanctified, sanctified. So be self-examining all along the way. The second, and this is so huge, um, it's a series of sermons rather than just a new sermon. But be humble, brothers and sisters. I mean, you don't have to go far at all in Scripture 
to realize how much God loves the humble and the contrite. Brother Michael read this earlier from Isaiah. I dwell in the high and holy places. I am exalted, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God loves the humble. He loves a humble spirit. And he is bound and determined that you are going to be humble, folks. And if he loves you, don't get upset when he does. Makes you humble. You see, we have the perfect model. We could not have a more perfect model than Jesus himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. And then in John 13, we've already mentioned it once. When he got her from that table and he took on the guise of a slave and he washed his disciples' feet, including Judas, who's about to, about to betray him, he showed us the meaning of the word humble and, 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 and the model that we are to follow. In fact, he said it. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Okay? Now, you may like to wash other people's feet. I'm not sure that he's talking about physically. I know a lot of people do, and I'm not going to question that. But what he's talking about is servanthood. What he's talking about is humility. What he's talking about is you last, them first. And more than anything, that you have no arrogance before your Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I think this is one of the most important things that we can strive for is humility. And towards that end, as I mentioned, don't get upset when God humbles you because he will discipline those that you love. And what he is actually doing is making you more Christ-like. And he's been saying that forever. Isaiah's second chapter of Isaiah. The haughtiness of men shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord will alone will be exalted in that day. James says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He loves humility, especially humility before him. So if indeed he humbles you, don't shake your fist at the sky and say, God, how could you do this to me? I know it's hard, but say, thank you, Lord. Because The more humble I am, the more Christ-like I am. And the more Christ-like I am, the more you can use me. None of us are going to say hit me again. But be thankful when you're humbled. Because God humbles those he uses and those he loves. Third point I want to bring out here is be slow to lead. I, I know that runs against our culture completely. We all want to lead. And, and in fact, one of the great dangers that the church has is those who are successful in the world outside of the church, they want to come into the church and lead because they don't see the difference. They think, well, I, I'm a leader in the world out there. Uh, I'm aggressive. I'm assertive. I, I'm powerful. I have a good, strong personality. And so, therefore, I am going to be successful out there. So I'm just going to simply transfer that success into the church. And what, what happens is they, they lead the church into a pit. Because unfortunately, people that are successful in the world are not necessarily those who are going to be successful in the church. In fact, brothers and sisters, I know know this seems counterintuitive, but the more more time I spend as a pastor, the more people I see coming and going from this church, and the more relationships that I've had that have been just absolute crash and burn relationships, I've noticed sort of a trend. That, that, that most of those relationships started out with that person saying, God told me I need to be a leader. God has put on my heart that I need to lead people. You know what you need to do? You need to go into a church and you need to sit in the, not the back row, 
at the end of the table. Okay? You know, sit in the pews. Don't expect to be a leader. Subject yourself to the elders of that church because God has placed them there for a reason. Let the elders tell you, hey, look, look, look at the look at the way that that person is a servant. Look at the way that they are understanding. And let them ask you to come forward and lead something. Don't you walk in and say, I was a leader in this church or I'm a leader in the world and I need to be a leader now because I think that's a dead giveaway. But you're not ready to lead. Basically, what you need to do is follow. Learn to follow first. And this is especially a message for young people. I know that I'm getting old. I know I'm old. Okay, let me just visit it. I, I just go ahead and say it. And, and when I was young, I, I, was, I wasn't a Christian, but I was arrogant. I mean, I was the epitome of, of arrogance. So I've really got not a foot to stand on. But I see such an arrogance in the church and young people sometimes. I see such an entitlement and, and Peter has a message for the young people that is this same message. He says in, in 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I have seen so many people come through here who say, God has called me to be a preacher. God has called me to teach. And if I can't teach here, well, I'm going to go someplace else and find out that I will. And I shudder for those people. Because James tells us, let not many of you be teachers, because we will be judged by a higher standard. Every word I say, everything that I tell you, every interpretation that I have, I will have to make account for. And people who are not called to preach, my goodness, I, I, I tremble for them. So don't be so quick to be a leader. Follow. That leads me to my last point, and I'll leave you with this. Oh, brothers and sisters, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Because those who are blind, those who are false teachers, they don't know they are. Or if they do know they are, they are really good at covering it up. They're going to throw the name of Jesus out. They're going to throw the gospel out. They know they've got the vernacular down. And they will lead you and they will lead a church right into a pit. Never, ever. Follow anyone who's not following Jesus. So you ask me, well, how do I know that? Well, it's hard. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. Jesus said even in the last days, the, the elect might be confused and, and led astray. Uh, they are very, very good at what they do. So here, here's, here's some guidelines, at least some very quick ones. Once again, Never follow anyone who's not following Jesus. Never follow anyone who says that the Bible is just a collection of myths and we can pick and choose it. If they do not express that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of the almighty, holy God, then don't follow them anywhere because they will lead you directly into a pit. I don't care how small the deviation is. When Jesus is telling his disciples, you're not above your master, you're not the leader, you're the follower, you don't vary one iota from what I have taught you because every single jot and tittle of the law will be fulfilled. You make sure that you stay true to my words. And that is the way I want you to lead. And if someone is not true to the word, don't follow them. Don't follow them if they don't look like Jesus. If you're, if you're looking at them and they see, you see them, okay? You see some rich guy strutting around on stage full of himself, and you look at Jesus over here, that's not him. Don't follow him. 
because he'll lead you into a pit. Follow someone that you can't see. Follow somebody that pursues humility as Jesus did. Follow someone who's going to teach you the truths of Scripture. Follow someone who doesn't put themselves forward but puts Jesus forward. You don't call yourself a Peterite, do you? You don't call yourself a Paulite or a Johnite or a Jamesite. You're a Christian. Follow Jesus and Him alone. And anyone who would lead you someplace else, you end up in South America drinking Kool-Aid. Right into a pit. Because they talk like they're following Jesus, but they're not. Now, the last thing I'm going to tell you is if we're using this word as the guide... You got to know the word, folks. Because if you don't know the word, you don't know whether someone is actually following inerrantly as, it, as if it's infallible. You're just simply blind and you're putting your faith in some blind guy who can lead you right into a pit. Never follow anyone who is not following Jesus. Or to bring it all together and just simply state it only follow a follower. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you have made this so clear. You have just spelled it out for us. Not only as disciples, we need to follow well. But also as leaders, we need to follow well. And never to follow anyone who's not following you. Not have their eyes glued to the hem of your robe. And, and, and are just transparent to the whole, the whole paradigm. Lord, help us to, to be wise in these things. Help us to recognize just how deeply we need you and need to follow you and not to follow anyone else and not to lead anyone else astray. In Christ's name we pray, amen.